Good afternoon. It's Chicky Fitzgerald. It's Friday, September 7th, and this is the Executive Girlfriends Group. Today, my guest is the author of a book called Future Think. Her name is Edie Weiner, and Edie, you have just such a fascinating uh job uh, of being a futurist, and we want to hear a little bit about that. But before we dive in uh, to where you are at present, we'd like to hear just a little bit about what got you here. Well, um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I I grew up in foster homes in Brooklyn, New York, and actually the worst neighborhood mm. in New York City, and went to the worst schools in New York City. But um, I'm 63 going on 64, and so when I was coming up through the public school system, it was a tremendous equalizer, and it didn't matter what your background was, who you were, or how much money you had, you got a good education, and you were equalized and could go on and do anything anybody else did. So I bless my background with several things. First of all, um, when you go from one home to another, you're kind of, and, and when you're young doing it, you kind of learn very early that there's no such thing as absolute reality. You live with one family and they tell you this is how you cook spaghetti, this is the proper bedtime, this is how you observe this holiday. And then you move in with another family that is the same religion in the same borough, in the same city and state, at the same time um, and era, and you learn, no, that was all wrong. This is the right bedtime. This is how you cook this, and this is how you observe that, and so on. And then you move into another home, and they tell you, no, all of that was all wrong. This is it. And you learn very early that everyone's reality is their own. And when you write that larger, in a much larger way, you realize that through all the millennia that people have lived, with all of the religions, all of the societies, all of the cultures, that we learn what we learn, and we believe that that's the truth, but it right. really is only relative to what other truths are. And everybody lives their own and sees their own. So mm -hmm. um, as I was growing up, I had no idea what I wanted to be, I had no clue. Um, but I also knew that so many things were in our own heads um, that if we wanted to, we could do um, almost anything with what we were capable of doing. I don't believe anybody can do anything. I don't believe that people who aren't talented can be, um, you know, uh, sprint runners. I don't believe that people who can't right. see the bigger picture can run for president. So I'm not one of those people who says you can be anything you want to be, but I believe that you can be anything you are capable of being. That's all in your head. And yeah. so um, despite the fact that I had no support in, in my homes, in my own self, I had support to always, you know, do what I thought I could achieve um, and lead things and grow things and create things. And um, and so when I went to work right out of college, I really had no exposure to the greater world because my world was very constricted and confined. I'd hardly ever been out of Brooklyn, New York, but um, but I was capable of seeing bigger pictures even beyond what people who had a lot of experience had seen. So the work of a futurist, which actually we began with a trade association in the life and health insurance business in the 1960s, uh, came easy to me because I was able to see the implications in things and be able to project what things could be because I wasn't trapped in the reality that I thought was the only one there was. 
Right. So I think that my background and whatever I brought to the party innately enabled me to go into a profession and do that profession well, as well as do a lot of other things well. Um, I was asked to go on my first corporate board when I was 29, and that was because I was able to see things that other people in the industry couldn't. It was an insurance company board. Um, And I started or ran about one dozen nonprofits. Um, A lot of them were to serve inner-city kids. I just wanted to give back to what I was. Um, A lot of them were about um, women, women's history, women's place. A lot of them were about um, bringing technology to to inner-city kids. Um, So whether it was about about mentoring girls or technology to kids or or dance um, for a while, um, for a long while, two decades, I, I chaired the Jose Limon Dance Company, Um, I always knew I could do whatever it was I chose to take on, and I could actually Mm -hmm. start them. I didn't even have to wait for other people to give them to me. Please, if you hear sirens in the background, I want to apologize (laughs) to all of you listeners. I'm actually sitting here in Manhattan in an office with a closed window on the ninth floor, but that doesn't stop the sirens from coming. Oh, I know. It's it's, it's one of those unique things about New York City that uh, if you haven't traveled there, yeah. <laughs> you very quickly find out that no matter how high you are, you can still hear all of it. Well, Edie, you have had just such an amazing background, and, and you know, I think that the whole story that, that uh, you shared with us about your early life is not only poignant, but it's also very, very relevant that the whole issue of the different perspective, uh, not only of where we are and where we've been, but what the future will will hold is what we, we most of us who took the time to watch both conventions that we just lived through. Um, I came away, and, and no matter what your political persuasion is, I came away thinking, oh, my God, how can these people all see things so very differently. So let's kind of back up uh, your career, the the 30 years worth of uh, work career that you um, have have had, has focused on issues analysis, strategic planning, and and really taking a look at the world of business in the context of what's going on in both the social, technological, political, and economic spheres and and that whole process of intelligence gathering and and how you look at it and how how you take that to the next step um you know is what you were so very skilled at and um you know I'm I'm totally fascinated by this because I'm I'm a strategic uh planning consultant and have have devoted my uh business career to the travel industry so I'm I'm the person that the investment community calls when they want to know uh whether they should invest in Expedia or Priceline or whether they should still put money into the airlines or what the gaming industry is going to do in Asia or, you know and so I I do that in a very very narrow um a slice of of all of the economy. So talk to me a little bit about some of the key trends that we are seeing now and and uh whether we should be concerned, excited uh and and what we can do about it if if there is something uh that really will change the way that we do business in the future. You know it was interesting Chicky, you said that it was interesting to you that at the two conventions um what what um sparked your um uh, kind of amazement was that people could see things so differently. And what actually occurred to me 
is that they're all seeing things so much the same. <laughs> because their their values are different. Right. But they are stuck in uh, in the same economy. And um and even as they talk about, you know, new jobs, new new industries and whatever, um the case has not been made adequately to the public, not just here in the United States but globally, that we are not and we're not in a recession, that we are in a fundamental global economic transformation. Mm-hmm. And the difference between those two, a recession and a fundamental transformation, is like night and day. And both of the candidates are looking at it from a recession perspective. And to my mind, that's seeing the world the same. And the work that we have to get on with, and that many of your listeners will be trapped in unless they get on with it, is understanding that nothing is going to go back to the way it was. That's the nature of recession thinking, but that everything will be fundamentally and profoundly changed, and that's the nature of transformational thinking. And why I say that is because we have been through fundamental economic transformations before in history. We were in the agricultural era for tens of thousands of years, in the industrial era for about 200, in the post-industrial for about 45. In 1992, we identified a whole new economy that was emerging. We called it the emotile. And we said that given the collapsing time frame, Tens of thousands of years, 200 years, 45 years. We were lucky if we saw 20 to 25 years in that new economy, but around the year 2005, we would begin to feel the fundamental wrenchings yet again. And we were right on. The thing that got it all muddied was the financial shenanigans, the high-risk kind of arbitraging Mm -hmm. that took place that spread around a financially linked system globally that brought down the financial house of cards, And that was what was used as the excuse, and I use that word because there's no real other word to use, although I don't like it, um, to lay off all the people that were no longer needed in the jobs that they were currently doing. Mm -hmm. When each of these transformations occurs, what triggers it is that whole new technologies come along, and when they operate in confluence together, they change everything about the way things used to be done. So that when the agricultural moved to the industrial, what we had were whole new machines, steam engines to take food to town, and and, and mechanical engines to do the work of the of, of the farming, the plowing, the reaping, the sowing, and all of that. And um, and so it was a, a confluence of technologies, and even the railroad technologies that needed steel technologies and blasting technologies and and engineering bridge building technologies. All of these technologies come together, and they come together, and they totally transform everything that was. And we went from a population in this country where almost 100% of us were employed in agriculture to one today where only 3% of us are employed in agriculture. Yet we still have all of this food being produced. We just don't need the people to do it anymore. And when we moved from the industrial into the post-industrial era, we actually then began to shut down a lot of old factories and build new ones because of automation. Um, And there were a lot of jobs eliminated then. Uh, and so we see this happen, and it, it's, it's not a bad thing, but the problem is that it's coming on faster and faster. So when you have a couple of decades to adjust to a new economy, 
you know, you have time to kind of retire and leave it to the, the, the young people to, to build whatever they want. But when it starts happening in the space of 12 and a half years as a half-life, all of a sudden you're only one-third through your career and you're no longer right. relevant. And certainly at, at the age of 55, um, you're not as relevant as people who know the new things coming along. And then as you extend the lifespan to 100, one in nine baby boomers are going to live to be 100 years old. We have to figure out how we're going to work for 65 years of our life or 70 years of our life uh, and support ourselves because a lot of the promises won't be there. And I mean promises of lifelong pensions, promises that kids are going to support you, promises of lifelong marriages. I mean, a lot of the promises are being withdrawn. And so you have this fundamental economic transformation that is is kicked into higher and higher and faster and faster gear by the technologies that are coming online. You have a longer lifespan. You have the fact that so many businesses now can come and go in the billions and billions of dollars in the space of two, three years. Um, And so many businesses are huge in terms of their capitalization and they employ a dozen people, 100 people. I mean, all of this is totally new to the right. 21st century, and yet we keep thinking as if it's still the industrial era. Our right. our health systems, as much as we try to patch them up and fix them with all the health care acts in the world, are still antiquated. Our educational system, as much as we try and fix a few up here and there, is still antiquated. The jobs that are being created are being created in areas like design and, and brain imaging and... Um, and what we call bang fuel. So here, here, don't faint. Anybody listening, don't faint when I say this. But bang fuel is an acronym, B-A-A-N-G-F-U-E-L, and it stands for bits, atoms, antimatter, neurons, genes, frequencies and vibrations, and ultra and infraspectral energy and light. When we have that all coming together, two of those, three of those, four of those, five of those, in combination... We have new materials technology. We have new manufacturing capacity. Some of you may be aware of what's going on in 3D manufacturing, three-dimensional manufacturing and production, where any individual can manufacture in their own home because of 3D printing devices. This is all revolutionary, new types of organisms, new types of materials, new types of energy that we've never seen before. We are on the brink of all of that And we don't have the people trained for a lot of those new jobs. There are plenty of jobs that are going to be available. And more and more people are going to have to be entrepreneurial because even if they have a job for a few years out of their life, they may not be employed for 65 years out of their life. So they're going to have to fend for themselves for different periods of their life and maybe not even in the same career or with the same skills. Right, so and this is a huge battle that I've had with with the educational system. Uh, my my daughter is at at a uh, school. She just started high school, and and I she had gone there when she was younger, and I had been on the curriculum committee, and it's very much a college prep school, but it goes from from uh, pre K all the way up to uh, you know senior in high school, and and I was trying to get them to take a look at how to prepare these kids for entrepreneurialism. And boy, they just, you know, I mean, their their focus was laser, and I, you know, I suppose that's good because they've got a hundred percent college acceptance rate. 
but at the same time, you know, those kids will go back through, you know, that educational system and not necessarily come out prepared uh, to do things on their own. Now, what recent research has shown, Chicky, that after four years of education, four years of college education, kids graduate with a declining ability to do critical thinking. Less I'm than they had when they I mean, it's not funny. It's very sad. It, it, yeah. Funny. I mean, you can laugh and you can cry. Right. Um, but this is why I look at both candidates and I look at most of our politicians. And while you can say that they come from different values, they come from different ways of solving yesterday's economy. Exactly. What I really don't see anywhere in the landscape are people who are understanding that, yes, it's wonderful that we have new manufacturing jobs coming back to the country, but they're not the ones that used to be here, and they're far fewer than will ever have been in the past. And we do have so many people who need to start their own small businesses. And as you said, at the high school level, not only do we not have people who can prepare people to think about how to start their own business, to be comfortable in starting their own business, to be able to have the assurance to start their own business. But <laughs> in the end, we penalize people who should be entrepreneurs and who are not academically oriented by telling them the economy doesn't want them unless they go to college, which is really unfortunate because we have yes. such high dropout rates, not always because the schools are bad, but because we're saying to a lot of young people, you know what, you have manual skills. We don't care about those. Or you have artistic skills. We don't care about those. You know, there could be a four-year waiting list in this country for fine upholsterers. We don't care about that. We just want people to, to get out of college four years later with a degree in international marketing. Well, you know, great. So we have, you know, three million graduates coming out in international marketing, but they don't have the critical thinking skills and they don't have the skills to be able to become self-employed because they will need those at some point in their career. Well, and I think some of that comes from the fact that we don't instill a sense of uh, intellectual curiosity at that early age and that reading is an, an uh, exercise that they have to do to fulfill a class as opposed to really wanting to devour education. And it's funny, we, we drive a long way because one of my uh, my 12-year-old is in a magnet school on the other side of town and my, my daughter is you know about eight, eight miles away, but it, it can be you know 20 to 30 minutes in the car. And we've started listening to TED you know, to the little 15-minute talks. And, you know, they're short enough and succinct enough that, you know, my, my 12- and 14-year-old can digest them. But I really want them to be curious about life. And and you have to start with that curiosity before you can even begin to look at what the new jobs are going to be five and ten years down the road. And why well, if you teach to is, a test, yeah. and that's what you're held responsible for, right. that's why critical thinking declines. If you put a new robotic system in, which they're talking about now, to grade something like 40,000 papers um, in, in an hour, then people are going to write to the system, which means right. they will use big words, they will use longer sentences, they will not start sentences with and or uh, uh, uh <laughs> I, I mean, uh, or, the, or um, and or uh, but or so, because the computer is taught that that's not good writing. And so what we start to do is we, um, we begin to regiment, regiment learning 
for a prior economy as opposed to open up the thinking and the critical thinking and the learning and all the vistas. You know, there used to be something called a liberal arts degree. Now, kids have to declare their major almost before they get into college without an opportunity to test out all kinds of areas of knowledge and learning. And when they elect that major, it is so focused, it's more like a a credential for a job than it is a liberal arts education. When I went to college, if you weren't going to be a doctor or a lawyer, forget about financier, that was this is way before then, if you weren't going to become a doctor or a lawyer or potentially an engineer, if you went to college for many years, you were going to earn less than your counterparts who didn't go to college. Because right. what were you going to do? How much money were you going to make with a philosophy degree? How much money were you going to make with a history of English literature degree? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you decided you wanted to teach or do, but you had a liberal arts education. And you know what? You were hired into businesses who wanted liberal arts graduates because those kids could think broadly. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden there were so many college graduates that the MBA became the screening device. And it wasn't because companies wanted what kids learned in their MBA. It was a screen for the kids who might do better in business. And then that became so warped that the MBA became almost the credential that a liberal arts degree once was. And we just started to to completely corrupt the entire system of education all the way up from from preschool through college. Um, Everything became corrupted. Everything became corralled, sameness. Um, It it was just – and so as we look to the future – one, you know, everybody talks about how many engineers are graduating from China, and China's going to kill us in education. Well, China can't kill us so long as they don't reinvent their education system to do the imagining and the creativity and the creative thinking and the critical thinking that our school systems always did. To the extent that we try to mimic China, we will lose. To the extent that they don't mimic what we used to do, they will lose. Because you can graduate 3 million engineers, but you have to understand that if engineering is not just all technical talent, but critical thinking as well, then it's a skill and a talent. And the critical thinking is is kind of like a skill-talent overlap, And let's equate it to playing the violin. Parts of the violin you can learn by rote, and it is a skill. But on top of that, there is a talent. And that talent basically separates out the violinists that will play for the symphony and those that will bore people in their living rooms. (laughs) And it's the same thing for engineering. You can graduate 3 million engineers, but if they don't have the talent on top of the skill, what difference does it make? how many engineers will really make a difference in the world. And so what we run the risk of doing is is regimenting our education so much that we lose the strength that we had. And what I'm not as concerned about with China 
is that they can graduate all the higher education people they need. If those kids don't start early on in their education being able to ask questions of teachers and being able to be right. imaginative and be given time to play, which they are not given because they are so overscheduled with education, mm -hmm. then it doesn't concern me at all that they're turning out all of those engineers. Right, right. And and it is a cultural thing and and we see it a lot. Uh, I'm I'm involved in software development and and um you know creating new kinds of systems to to change the way that we've done things in the past and and to retool that. And you know, there are certain uh economies that have have uh, made their stake in software development, but you're right, they're missing that critical thinking so that if you present them with a set of specifications and you forget to tell them what color something should be, you know they may come back and make it purple and and they'll say, "Well, you know, you didn't tell me what to do, no, but you know did purple's you good, what you're gonna yeah. get is just gray, and nobody wants that <laughs> right. anymore exactly exactly, <laughs> so I want to jump into the book a little bit just so that that people understand um you know a little bit about future thinking and uh because it there is so much rich content, I mean, I think that this is fodder for you know several interviews, but one of the chapters that just jumps right off of the page at me is chapter three which talks about substituting the spiral for the pendulum and you know i i know that we we look at at the pendulum of our economy and it, it going up and down but it doesn't feel like it's going to come back to center and i, I think that this chapter uh is extremely provocative uh from that perspective could you talk to us a little bit about that yeah, uh, we know that everything goes in cycles. History has gone in cycles. Politics goes in cycles. Um, economics goes in cycles. Social value systems go in cycles. We know that these cycles happen, and we tend we've been thought we've been taught to think of these cycles in terms of a pendulum that something will swing all the way to one end and then it goes back the other way and then it goes too far that way and then it goes back the other way and so in our minds and in our policies in our plans in our aspirations in our interpretation of everything around us what we see is this swinging back and forth go to the left go to the right get rich, get poor, get, you know, so on and so forth. Um, the weather changes, and then it goes back. Um, so we see these, you know, like um, pendulums or penduli, whatever the word is, and we, we, we see these swings. But in fact, if you study history, you realize that while things do go in cycles, nothing ever goes back along the same path it traveled. So the idea that something would swing back like a pendulum is absolutely and totally misleading. What happens more likely, in fact in all cases, is that what you see is the cycle where something is coming back around again but not on the same path. So the better illustration in your mind is to think of a spiral. It could be a small spiral. It could spiral up, it could spiral down, but the thing about a spiral is that it comes back around again, but it doesn't land in the same place, nor did it come back around again on the same path. Too many things have changed in the interim. Nothing can ever go back the same way it was. In uh, the time between the last swing between conservatism and liberalism, or liberalism and conservatism, right. 
things have happened in the markets, things have happened in the environment, things have happened globally, things have happened with national security, things have happened in terms of the changes of gender roles in the home, in the workplace. Uh, too many things have happened. So when you return again, you have to be careful. I mean, for example, if we look at you know conservatism, the conservatives, you could argue that there was a swing around toward conservatism, um, and that there are a lot of people who might have might be more conservative than liberal, but the but if the party can't see the difference this time around, it can't talk to the changes that people have made in their lives and what they accept now. So that if you want to be conservative, it's hard to be conservative because you have to buy into a return to an ancient form of the belief system as opposed to a much more futuristic form of the belief system. And the same thing is true of liberalism. Um, if we go back to liberal, too much has changed. I mean, you know, you can't go back to a time where we learned that a lot of the liberal agenda also failed and didn't work. Um, and so that's why, you know, Clinton had to reform welfare. That's why we take another look at what busing did to inner city schools, and maybe we would have done that a little differently, even though we believe that everyone should be entitled to be together and have a great education. Maybe we would have solved it differently. So um, too much happens. And when you don't recognize that, that all that, I mean, we, we may see a return to romance romanticism, you know, people say, oh, you know, the weddings are getting more romantic, everybody wants more romance. You know what? Yes, but the fact is that when life, ex life extension now takes us to 100 years or 90 years, the idea that you're going to be permanently in that marriage for your entire life, that's a hard thing for a lot of people ultimately to take. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, really, it's really hard for us to think about the fact that we were meant to spend 80 years with the same person. <laughs> So some people will, but a lot of people won't. So right. they can all enter their relationships with the same degree of romanticism, but reality intervenes and changes the course of that. Um, so um, if you think of pendulums, penduli, you get it wrong. The policies are wrong. The businesses you build are wrong. The things you teach your children are wrong. The, the ways that you try and organize your, the planning for your life is wrong. What you have to think about is spirals. Right. Things might come around to the same flavor, but they're not made in the same machines. Well, one of the other chapters that uh, absolutely intrigues me because uh, my my expertise, uh, in addition to being a strategist, happens to be the strategy of distribution. And you've got uh, an entire chapter, in fact, a, a fairly large chapter, on the multiplier effect of new distribution channels. And my industry, where I've spent the bulk of my uh, career, I, I have been primarily in the travel industry, but also touch uh, mapping and navigation and location-based services, which is all in the mobile arena, and uh, you know, I've done a bit in telecommunications. So uh, I find this particular topic really fascinating. And many of our executive girlfriends group members are senior executives in distribution, uh, you know, within the travel industry. So uh, very, very interested to hear your perspective on the multiplier effect of the new distribution channels. Yeah, if we look through history, um, as new distribution systems come along, sometimes things go away, they die, like the buggy whip. <laughs> But more often than not, the lesson that history teaches us is that new distribution systems don't subtract from 
the economic pie or just only redistribute. They actually add to make the pie bigger. And in fact, what they really do is they multiply to make the pie much, much bigger. Mm-hmm. So the example we use is that if you go back to when um, uh, the radio was first introduced as a distribution system for entertainment and information, um, people would come down from all over their their house into the living room to watch the radio. So when television was introduced, it was assumed that radio would be dead. Nobody would listen to radio. Uh, and that was true for a little while until radio figured out what it did better than television. So it got rid of the murder mystery hours because TV did that better, and it got rid of the, the variety shows. TV did that better. And radio went to recorded talk and music um, and weather, news, uh, all those things that um, people wanted to listen to and not watch or could listen to when they couldn't watch, like in the car or while they were shaving or whatever. When TV came along, it was assumed that movie theaters were dead. Nobody was ever going to go to movie theaters anymore. <laughs> and for a few years, movie theaters did hurt. They lost a lot of audiences. People stayed home and watched their televisions. So movie theaters had to figure out, and the, and the, and the movie business had to figure out what they could give to TV because TV did it better and what they did and could do better. And so they got out of little black and white films because TV could show those um, and, you know, kind of like, you know, sort of like bouncing ball entertainment um, in the theater. And what they did was they changed their technologies completely in the entertainment business and came out with the blockbuster films of Spartacus and Ben-Hur and Cleopatra mm-hmm. and the Ten Commandments and all of these things that required whole new color technologies, whole new sound technologies, whole new vision and projection technologies that were much bigger, much grander, much more sophisticated. Um, and, and they air-conditioned the theaters. And um, they even grew um, drive-in theaters, which started trends that are maybe for a whole other call in discussion. Right. But the point the point is that the introduction of television did not subtract from the revenues of radio or the movie theaters. It didn't even add to it. What it did was it ultimately multiplied the pie so huge that the combined entertainment business was able to spawn all kinds of magazines and licensing properties and and everything. Radio got much bigger. The movies got much bigger and took in even more money. Uh, everything crossbred, celebrity, licensing, information, news. Um, everything just crossbred between the three distribution mechanisms, but they all did best what they did best and didn't try to compete with the other for what the other did better. Some obviously die in this process because they don't know how to morph into what they can do better than what they used to do that someone else can now do better. And that's always the case. Mm -hmm. Uh, We see that in retailing. Retailing is not dead. Retailing is huge. The pie is bigger than it ever was before. But retailers will die if they cannot morph into something that is a unique value proposition that isn't done better by others already. So um, whatever we see coming along, and we, we frequently use the example of Sony um, back in the mid-80s, the boombox was the, you know, the biggest distribution system for entertainment, without any question. 
and um, for, for music. I mean, there were more boomboxes sold than any other kind of electronics, and everybody was into boomboxes. And Sony had a vision that the future would be about personal, portable, and programmable listening entertainment. And so they started developing new technologies based on their vision. And another whole subject could be on whether they created the future or met the future. That's not important for this example. But they 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 created the Walkman, and um, they went. They took this technology to their business, and nobody nobody would partner with them on it. They took the technology to Wall Street and said, "Look what we're doing! Isn't this great? You should value us more." And Wall Street said, "Just don't screw around with your boombox business, and we don't care what you do with the fringes." <laughs> and they actually took the technology to focus groups, and it failed miserably. Nobody wanted to put anything on their ears to listen to music. So it actually took several years before the Walkman took hold. But Sony stuck with it because that was their vision, and they believed in their vision. And so um, after about four or five years, when the Walkman finally did begin to catch on, ultimately it owned the entire music business. And then the Discman, Sony introduced the Discman. But then when the next big iteration of their own vision came to pass, and remember their vision was that the future was going to be about portable and programmable and personal listening entertainment, when the next iteration came through in the 90s, and that was Napster and cheap and free downloading, all Sony could see was subtraction. This was going to take away from their revenue stream. They had built a whole music business around their technology. And so um, they initiated lawsuits and did not pay attention to history, didn't pay attention to the lesson that new distribution systems multiply, don't subtract. And, um, and so they went and they dug in the trenches. Um, and who was it that could see the revenue expansion from this new distribution system? Apple. That be an Apple. It yeah. should have been a Sony iPod. Instead, it was an Apple iPod because Apple didn't suffer from that same fear. Uh, they had nothing to lose. Sony wanted to hold on to what they had. Um, and now as you look at where Apple has gone and where that technology has gone, you can see enormous multiplier effects mm -hmm. from that one technology. Enormous multiplier effects. You talked about your daughter with the iPod before. Um, you know, with the, with the tablet before. Right. And so... Um, if you understand that if you can get comfortable with the fact that somebody might be able to do something better than the way it was, cheaper, faster, more accurately, whatever, but you still have a value proposition, you have to migrate your value proposition to the next level up. You can't keep protecting yesterday's level. And that's the mistake that people make when they get so afraid. They think they're going to be put out of business by new distribution systems. Well, you will be if you don't adapt and level up. There's no question about it. But if you adapt and level up, it can get bigger and better than it ever was before. Well, I absolutely uh, believe that and, and have been a very strong proponent of that in my own industry. So it's, uh, I'm, I'm just so thrilled to hear your, your whole rationale behind that because that, that makes it uh, you know, very real and you know, perhaps I can help translate that for uh, the people in my industry who you know, in many cases have had just such limited thinking and being so afraid of uh, you know, people like Expedia and Travelocity and 
you know, the the new distribution channels, including, uh, you know, the folks like Kayak who are aggregating everything all in one place, or even Google themselves. And and uh, in fact, I'm going to be in New York next week for Google's uh, annual uh, travel conference for their for their top customers. So, uh, uh, are you going to be around in 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 New York next week? Um, I actually will be in and out. Um, I'm going down to um, an inauguration celebration for a friend, um, a swearing in um, one day, and then in and out some of the other days. Oh, but cool. well, I, I will. Uh, I'll just I will go offline, and you'll let me know when you're going to be around. Yeah, definitely. I would. I would just love the the opportunity to meet you and. Um, you know, just to further further explore what you're doing in your business. Why? Uh, before I let you go, why don't you tell us a little bit uh, about how to reach you? Uh, I know you your company um, goes by the shortened name of of uh, Web. Uh, so tell us about the company, how to find you online. Well, see, that's interesting too because when we started our business in 1977, <laughs> there was uh, no our web. three names are Wiener, Edrich, and Brown. And um, I and we could have put them in any order or not named the company right. by our names, but I <laughs> we had a feeling then in 1977 that the future would be about an interconnected web of knowledge, oh, so and so we arranged our names so that our first letters were spelled at W E B, and that's the logo for our company, Web, right. and we've had that since 1977. So when oh, people no, ask no. us, can we really like project <laughs> into the future, there's a case where we were not only so right, we were too right. Because now <laughs> we can't use our own acronym because people confuse us with the web. <laughs> oh, exactly. In fact, it was funny because before I even saw that, I was looking at how to contact you because I thought, oh, you know, Siren, she must be in New York. And I, I looked and it said contact web, and I thought, well, that's weird. Now, <laughs> exactly. What That's how that right mean? we were. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the, that is uh, right. Wiener Edrich Brown is the name of the company, W-E-I-N-E-R-E-D-R-I-C-H-B-R-O-W-N. Um, and your listeners are welcome to come to our webpage. You're welcome to um, follow um, Erica and Jared, our two executives. They are the ones who do the blogging. Um, I, I don't. Erica is very um, active in that, and so please um, uh, follow. You'll get some. You'll get some interesting perspectives on some issues if you go to the right. web page, and if you sign on um, and uh, become active in the um, the blog space. Um, you know, that's that's great too, um, and uh, and you can follow Erica on that. Terrific, terrific. Well. Uh, for those of you who are members of the Executive Girlfriends Group, uh, we have uh, information for you uh, on how to contact Edie directly on our private website. So uh, you'll be able to go in and, and just ping her with any, any questions. And those of you who are listening on uh, iTunes or on Blog Talk Radio, uh, again, it's uh, wieneredrichbrown.com. Uh, for for getting in touch and um, and spell W E I N E R yes W E I N E R thank you so much um, and you do public speaking as well a lot of it and do you do that through a speakers bureau um, there are a number of speakers bureau that have me on their okay. rosters but if you're you're much better off if you come directly to me um, okay. that way you don't have to pay a speaker's fee our 
but our our fee for speaking um, is is not too shabby. So um, I would discourage well, people wonderful. from inquiring if they are looking for a very low cost or a free speech. Okay, great. And on Twitter, uh, it's Web Future Trends. And um, uh, again, I know a lot of folks uh, who who are constantly looking for for someone provocative to speak, but uh, you know who really is knowledgeable as well. And I think you're you're a really really good match for that. So as people come to me to ask me my uh, my recommendations, you will now be on that list. Thanks, Chicky. <laughs> and right, I hope we do get to meet in person next week. Well, yeah, I do too. And uh, again, offline, uh, we can talk about that. But uh, again, I want to just thank you for your time. I am going to terminate the recorded part of the call, and uh, then I'll just share my uh, my contact information with you. So for those of you who are listening uh, online, you can get more information about the Executive Girlfriends Group on www.executivegirlfriends.com.